You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. My name is Thomas Caldwell. I am very thrilled to have a full cave tonight. Along with me, Cerise Howard, Alexandra Helen Nicholas and Emma Westwood. Good evening, all. Hello. 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 So we're going to talk about some films on the show tonight. Those damn dirty apes are back in War for the Planet of the Apes. We also take a look at Casey Affleck in the afterlife in A Ghost Story. But first, A Monster Calls is a fantasy drama about Connor, a 12-year-old boy whose mother is seriously ill. One night, Connor is visited by a monster who informs him that it will tell him three stories and in return, Connor must tell the monster a story of his own which will involve speaking an unspeakable truth. Now, while connected to his mother's illness, the nature of the monster and its intentions towards Connor aren't always clear. A Monster Calls is directed by Spanish director J.A. Bayona, whose previous feature film credits are The Impossible from 2012 and The Orphanage from 2017. The screenplay is written by the England-based American writer Patrick Ness, who adapted the film from his own novel, the premise of which originally came from English writer Siobhan Dowd, who died before she was able to write the novel herself. The film's cast includes Felicity Jones as Connor's mother, Sigourney Weaver as his grandmother, and Liam Neeson as the voice and motion capture performer for the monster. Newcomer Lewis McDougall plays 12-year-old Connor. I think we're all across a monster calls. We are. We are. Am I I alone in being a bit puzzled as to why this film isn't huge and being talked about more? It's amazing. I absolutely agree with you. When you look at some of the films that have taken off, but also it's so commercial. Why is not everybody going bananas for this incredible film? It's very approachable. I don't understand. I I, I don't understand. The general happening. The the answer is is that, um, and it's kind of a bugbear of mine in that because it's about. Um, a child and a child's fantasy world, a lot of critics were quite hard on it because they were their feeling was that it was too dark to be a children's film. Nothing about this film suggests to me that it is a children's film. I, yeah. I don't understand. Like The Shining, you know. It's a young adult film. It is aimed at sort of 12 plus, I think that's theoretically. Different. I think that that's different, though, from being a child's film. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Something, yeah. I think it's a very the, different the, thing. The broad yeah. critical dismissal of this film, I think, has really stemmed from the fact that people, because the main character is a child, there's some weird assumption that the audience must children. also yeah. be for children. And it does have this kind of dark fairy tale vibe going on. Oh, I, um, think, it, I think it appeals to the child in all of us, just, wouldn't look, you say? I, I adored this <laughs> film and I never want to see it again because it destroyed me on a really... Oh, I'm not a big big crier in films and I was just howling by the end of this movie. I was I cried so, every film. so strongly affected by I've it. I've seen it twice and I've read the novel and all three times, yeah, left me choked up and in, in Tears. Uh, and the film actually adds, I didn't realise until I saw the film for the second time, but it adds actually uh, a fair bit of material to what's already there in the novel. And the choices about what it adds is superb. The, there's a whole sequence at the end which is purely from the film only. I mean, watching it the second time, it ended at the scene the novel ends, and I thought, oh, well, that's devastating, I'm broken. And then it carries on one more scene that does just it, does it include went even further. And it's everything beautiful. in the novel as well? Does it include. There's a few omissions. There is a, 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 a 
an old childhood friend of his who he goes to school with who helps who, who attempts to stand up to his bully for with him she's cut out of the film altogether it's not a huge loss i think there's more about the bullying subplot in the novel but otherwise it's incredibly faithful not that that's a measure of its worth i, I think we're all on the I same page that, about yeah. that we, we, yeah. we don't really care about no, fidelity no. but it's a very close adaptation that makes it incredibly cinematic i think it's a really lovely monster specimen i'm used to writing about mainly um horror monster movies um but this really buys into a lot of stuff that comes from the horror monster movies as well um i had a chat with um adam simon uh who did mm, the american nightmare yes. we spoke about him last week yes. and we talked oh, about really? George yeah, we yeah. oh i missed out on that but anyway um he he was talking about uh, i think the question posed to him was uh why do we like monsters so much and he said that um it's from childhood and um he believes that we we relate to a monster because a monster uh, as a child you are actually um the monster in in the world you're the mutating you're the the, the the creature, the being that hasn't asked to be there, who's been dragged into this space, you've been, um, you've been, you're mutating all the time. You're the small one amongst all the the, the big people. So, and and this film really played on that and played on that idea of um, the child being a monster. I think when um, he was angry, it was shot from below a lot to give him that size and. Um, and so it, it, I thought it was, yeah, beautifully poetic in that way as well, but also just stunning in its imagery and the play of the animated world with the live-action world as well. What I found really powerful about this story is, and we haven't said too much about where it goes, but most, most reviews and synopsis of the film actually, I don't know whether it's a spoiler or not, the, the, the kind of narrative resolution I think you do see coming very early in the film. I think you, you, very early you have a sense of where this is, is going, and I think that's to to mimic the the idea of Connor being in self-denial and the fact that the adults aren't telling him the truth. What I find is the really mis- mysterious, gripping part of this is not exactly knowing what is the monster. I mean, the monster is so often this force from the id, um, you know, this extension of someone's psyche. And and in this film, it's it's that really plays with what exactly is it? Is it there to cure his mother? Is it there to nurture him? Is it there to torment him? Is it there to, to, to punish him? Or is it there to sort of guide him? And, and it tells all these, these riddles, the, these stories, which do go in unexpected ways and it does this to really capture the complexities of being an adult so this film you know you can kind of see it's going to be a film grappling with the way we deal with grief and perhaps the anger and fear associated with grief but it goes a lot deeper than that and that's what i found so surprising and sophisticated it deals with some very complex difficult emotions and and contradictions Mm. we haven't heard from you yet cerise you've like seen it literally a couple of hours ago haven't you yeah, yeah, I walked out of a session very, very shortly ago only to find Jeff and Felicity Kennett in the cinema. More monsters. Uh, <laughs> that's that's so still, a strange still thing. processing. That is a very, very strange thing that you yeah. have just told us. Yeah. Did you ask them I what they to, thought of it? I had to share that. Uh, no, I didn't. I beat a hasty retreat <laughs> and made my way here. Uh, I, I really did enjoy this film. I, I was put in mind often throughout it, of uh, the recent Anne Hathaway star, Colossal. Uh, I think these two films would make a wonderful double. There's a lot there about uh, traumatic episodes and monsters that may be spawned from them or at least have some relationship with them. Uh, Both films play with that in interesting ways. I think this one's really interesting in that the monster 
might not be his alone without giving any spoilers away really mm. it's a complex monster as you were saying thomas it's uh what quite what this monster is born of is um it is complex i have to say liam neeson gives good tree yeah. <laughs> i think it's the first neeson like he was amazing you could have made a it. wood joke there <laughs> <laughs> i chose not to oh, i'm sorry yeah, it's good to, it is good to see him branching out I think it's really interesting that you mention um, Nacho Vigalondo because I do think even though this film is very, you know, we hear Sigourney Weaver with a British accent, which is a little strange. Mm. It's such a Brit film in so many ways, um, but it's so embedded in the Spanish Gothic. Um, and, of course, so is so are Nacho's films, yeah. um, even though, of course, Colossal mm. was very much an American movie with American funding and, you know, that was his big, um, you know, he'd done Open Windows beforehand, but I think that, that Colossal was certainly his big breakthrough movie um, in the US and English-speaking countries in particular. But I think both of these directors and a lot of other uh, genre filmmakers from Spain, they're really marked by this really... I, I just I just love the Spanish Gothic, the contemporary Spanish Gothic. I don't know if there's a national cinema, and I do still count Nacho Vigalondo as part of that, that's really doing the majestic mm. work in the fantastic um, that filmmakers from Spain or with yeah. the Spanish background well, are doing. In the mid-2000s, there was definitely a sense there was something happening in Spain, kind of led by Guillermo del Toro, who is a mentor of this director's, um, and I think was the executive producer on The yeah, Orphanage, yeah, which, yeah. which is kind of del Toro light. Mm. It, it's, I don't think it's an entirely successful film, but that's his Origins, And I think there's a lot in this that reminds me of Del Toro's arguably best work, which is Pan's Labyrinth, mm. which is this dark fairy tale element using a very powerful uh, parable for very serious issues. It's, it's not quite as traumatic or as explicit as, as Pan's Labyrinth, but I think it, it, that's because it is aimed at a young adult audience. Mm, mm. There are also Spanish directors, I think, who haven't broken out into the kind of mainstream English-language West that are doing oh, really yeah. similar stuff yeah. too. There's and a I, lot of I, non-zeitgeisty ones, There's yeah. a guy, um, if you can look it up perhaps, there's a guy that did a film called Day of the Beast, Alex. Oh, I remember. Uh, Iglesias. Um, thank you. Mm. And his, his films are incredible and they come from this, they're all quite different to each other, but they, they just have this this particular take on the fantastic that is very, very dark and very earnest that I, I just appreciate it so much. There's something about it that, that is just so magical. And I think you really feel it in this mm. film. And it is at this slight, I don't know, I, I just found that it left such a huge impact on me because it is such an English film in so many ways, such a British film, you know, stiff upper lip and all that. I like that this film uh, very early on um, asks you to, or positions you to sympathise with monsters. We, we see the young boy with his mum uh, watching King Kong mm. and, and uh, he's instantly sided with the monster and we, we sense that she very possibly does too. I mean, she's, after all, introducing him to this this timeless classic. I, I've always loved films and literature which um, side with the monster by way of suggesting that it's the human beings who are truly monstrous in our society. Uh, I especially think of Clive Barker's work when I, I think of that. Um, it took me a little while to twig that many of his literary works twig, and films... Twig, twig. <laughs> Sorry. Just leave it. <laughs> <laughs> just leave it. Just leave it. Leave it. Yeah. Can't believe you're doing tree puns. I'm so sorry to everybody listening to this. Yeah. You guys are yeah, rooted. It's my <laughs> fault. God. Yeah. It took quite a while for me to... to yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have to about this. <laughs> that in Barker's world, uh, the, the humans typically are, are monstrous and the, the, the so-called monsters are the, the, the othered people who are sort of uh, parable standards for people who are othered in our society, the people who are out, the outsiders, like the, the young boys in this who's bullied. We There's a, a sense that perhaps some of that bullying is there's, there's perhaps a homoerotic, but yeah, sort of prepubescent homoerotic Absolutely. vibe to it. Um, that all seems to be woven in there. That's you know, obviously a lot more to the, 
for in, in Barker's work because he's a, a queer writer. Well, it's certainly masochistic too. Yeah. He, he, the, the, the Connor wants to be punished. Yeah. 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 I think I think it also though he, the the real monster in it in, is his anger. It's all about, you know, I think his fear of invisibility, um not being seen is the the more of what Connor's you know, concerned about. And as a child, you know, not being able to express emotion really well or not being able to channel the emotion or compact it into, you go, this is what I'm going through and understand it. So it's all that, you know, like his little, his tantrum and um, wanting the bully, even when the bully doesn't see him, that's when he has his biggest problem. One of the things I find really, I mean, we're talking about this, the use of this sort of fantastic um you know, this imagery and this sort of narrative that's really structured around this kind of fantastic figure of the monster. One of the things that really struck me about this film is that it talks about grief, not about somebody who's already deceased. It's actually a really interesting... When I thought about that, it's not something that you necessarily see a lot of. In film, when people grieve, they grieve for somebody who has died. Mm. But in this film, the grief process is for somebody who is sick and it seems inevitably going to die. Mm. Which um, is that's reality. The, that's what it most is. People I go mean, through, it's, yeah. it's such a you know there is this sort of you know this umbrella fantastic thing going on in this film, but the actual reality of it is really you know living with somebody with a long term terminal illness, and that's and, why, and it's a devastatingly complex, it, real. Thing. It upsets us so much yeah. because you know it, it touches it's it's it hits a truth mm. really in, in a fantastical sense, which is always the beauty of filmmaking, being able to work with the fantasy and poltergeist. That's another thing I see in this film. Anything with a tree outside mm. a window has to be, you know, goes back to poltergeist. Oh, the Evil Dead. Celia. The, oh, wow. I, was I, was Celia. I wasn't really thinking of the Evil Dead. <laughs> We're but. always thinking of the Evil Dead. We had a good moment about 30 seconds to end the segment on, but <laughs> now everyone's thinking of the tree scene from Evil Dead. <laughs> uh, no, we have been talking about A Monster Calls. It is actually on uh, fairly wide release, so it's playing widely throughout cinemas, and I think we're all kind of unanimous in, <laughs> or, or whatever that word is, in, in, saying, um, in saying this is worth tracking down and, and, and seeing. This is a, a powerful and profound film. You're listening to Plato's Cave. This is 3 Triple R. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. War for the Planet of the Apes is the third film in the prequel slash reboot series of films that takes place before the original 1968 Planet of the Apes film. War continues at the story of the group of highly evolved apes led by Caesar, uh, who has been the protagonist of one, who has been the protagonist and one of the few ongoing characters across all these three recent films. Now, while most of the human race has now been wiped out by a virus, there are various military factions remaining who have no interest in existing with uh, with coexisting with the apes. And in this film, the focus is on the conflict between Caesar's tribe and a rather ruthless group of soldiers known. As Alpha Omega, who are loyal to their fanatical Colonel Kurtz-like leader, played by Woody Harrelson. Andy Serkis once more voices and does the motion capture for Caesar, and the film is directed by Matt Reeves, who directed the previous film in the series, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, and prior to that, Let Me In and Cloverfield. Are any of you Planet of the Apes fans? Because I yeah. struggle to give a damn about this series. The third one is the strongest. The th- I mean, the, the third from, from the original from cycle. the original five films, oh, the original Escape five, from the yeah. Planet of the Apes. I think it's even better than the first one. It's 1971, and they worship uh, an atom bomb. It's incredible. 
It's incredible. They right, go a little, so, the so last one goes a little bit wobbly. I think the fourth one has this kind of prison vibe. It's been years since I've watched them, so please, no pop quiz. But you are um, a fan. <laughs> yeah, I really... And I have, really, you been, have you been watching all these prequels? Funnily enough, I saw the first one and really liked it, but the second one just fell off my radar. Um, yeah, likewise. Yeah. I don't yeah. know how that happened I because I really liked it. I think we covered it on the show. Uh, the second Cerise one was, was Dawn. Napping. Not on my watch. Yeah, yeah I'm <laughs> sure... I've got a funny feeling Josh, maybe Tara and I covered it back in the day, but anyway... Yeah. There you go. I, look, I, I, except for one small thing that I'll have a moan about later, I thought this was terrific. Um, I really enjoyed this probably more than I did the first one of the reboot series. I was really struck by what a classic war movie it was. It, the soundtrack is very classical Hollywood um, and it's just such a perfect classical war film. Um, mm. I was reading up, I think, online and, you know, I, I don't think it's any particularly rare knowledge, but they were saying that, um, Reeves was saying, you know, that he just spent a lot of time watching old movies, like biblical epics and I think he actually mentioned specifically Bridge, uh, Bridge on the River Kwai which the novel of which was written by the same chap who wrote the novel that the first Planet of the Apes so Planet of the Apes is a, an adaptation of a book yes. written by the same guy that wrote Bridge over the River Kwai oh, that Bridge makes of the a, River Kwai wow. yeah. so this film oh, I think back. is a real hat like a conscious hat tip to those kind of I it think, is a POW film isn't it yeah, uh, it's yeah. Like, I think it's the two films that I saw him flag uh, numerous times were Bridge on the River Kwai and The Great Escape Apocalypse they're kind of kooky at times. Um, but this, I think, I, I was just struck. I think of all of these films that I've seen, this was the most, you know, classical, like capital C classical. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up the music, Alex, because I, I didn't really, I, I probably have to watch it again to really get a sense of this, but I didn't find any recurring theme as such. It seemed like the music moved through so many different types of classical orchestral scoring um, to evoke a different type of film, whether as... I mean, I even saw, you know, Holocaust films in here and, um, I mean, there was just so much, even a little bit of 2001 at points, which isn't hard to do when you've got apes. But... Um, yeah, sure. It yeah. was just this incredible... <laughs> Everybody looks at me for that. <laughs> no Lancelot link. Yeah. <laughs> but the the fact that it was, it was in, uh, an amazing mashup, um, uh, yet it was um, lovely and clear and, you know, it had uh, and uh, what I felt was a straightforward narrative that you could you could follow. It didn't feel like it was um, doing the mashup for the sake of um, we're being smart. That's or exactly like what that. I like about this is yeah. how earnest it was. Yes, There's yes. no and and my, my the one thing that I really didn't like about this was Woody Harrelson. Um, yeah. He gives um, I think yeah. a film killingly bad monologue yeah. that hammy. I actually felt the light in my eyes dim. It was <laughs> appalling. And I think he could be a really great actor, so I don't mean to diss him. But he just came across as this sort of irony, bro. And the whole tone of the film is so consciously not that. Um, yeah. It was almost like this sort of Tarantino-esque performance in the middle of this really, really sincere... I mean, I loved... 
I loved how earnest this film was. Well, and it just it just was the second that he was off screen, the minute that the CG monkeys were back, I was fine. And that's <laughs> it's like, oh, finally the human CG, connection. The CG monkeys, they, they sold the CG monkeys. In fact, all this, the well, circus, Andy Circus was mm. um, Caesar, wasn't he? Yes, he's, he's yes. done Caesar in all the films. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So mm. there, I have never seen so many close-ups on a CG creature. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of CG characters in films and and even lead characters, but this one they really played on the emotionality of into his eyes, into his face, which shows an incredible confidence with what they're doing in terms of the computer-generated effects and the work that obviously went into it in order to sell it. Because I, I actually forgot that they were CG characters. I and, kept forgetting too. Yeah, mm. and I'm the biggest cynic when it comes to CG. Yeah, the CG's brilliant. It's, mm. uh, it, there are scenes where there are the, the whole screen, whole beautiful wide, wide screen is teeming with monkeys and they're there. I don't have that weird sense of are they, or you know they're not real, but I mean you can really believe in their physicality. They really inhabit often very rough terrain, uh, terrain with a lot of uh, edges, things that, that CG doesn't always wrap itself around very nicely or elegantly or convincingly. Uh, and a, a beautiful waterfall and that, that whole business there. I mean, it's stunning, that environment. Uh, um, I've really no idea how much this film was, was real, in fact, how many of those I've, Yeah, landscapes. I have zero idea either. I can't, um, I can't distinguish it. It's it. both impressive and yeah. a bit terrifying when you see something like this that's so clearly made artificially. Well, it's not, not, not artificially, it's just different to what we've grown up believing film could be. But um, it, is, it is seamless. It, it is. looks so yeah, real and clearly it, it can't have been. And there is real uh, emotion in those performances. Mm. The the orangutan, uh, Maurice, Maurice mm. is as gorgeous yeah. as well. Yeah. Oh, I could beautiful. just look into those eyes, <laughs> just get lost. And this is the first film, at least in this 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 new trilogy. I'm not familiar with the original series at all. I've I've seen the original Charles Heston film once, but I've seen this new trilogy. This is, I think, the really remarkable thing about this one is it's from the point of view of the apes, yes, and the audience absolutely. is firmly on the side of the apes. There's no kind of both sides are equal good and bad and conflicted, which is kind of what happened in the second film, you know, in that there were bad eggs in both. This one is very much the apes have become the other, the oppressed, and we were on their side. And this film very much lays a lot of imagery from Vietnam on top of them, a lot of imagery from Iraq on top of them. It's sort of pick your oppressed group to identify yes. with, with these apes. Oh, well, exactly. That's the thing. I didn't feel like really, even though they were that we were looking at apes, I mean, it was a theatrical device to just present human beings. I mean, it was really... I think that if we were really to have intelligent apes, I'd hope that they'd act differently to that. I mean, they were it was a male ego film. Like the whole thing was set around, and I'll say male ego rather than humankind and women, because it was around that idea of the warring man and, um, you know, Caesar looking for revenge when it came down to it. He was um, most of the drive, the, the drive for his character through it was to seek revenge, and that is all ego-based stuff. That is all human too. And, I would it, was argue, though, and it was for family. Yeah, yeah it's it, family. It was, I mean, yeah, his yeah. initial drive, I mean, I think the film confronts the idea that he goes off on a revenge quest. I mean, he doesn't get away with that without some kind of fallout. No, no, yeah. yes. No, yeah. no, I get that. But it was just, yeah, the idea was it's it's around ego. It's around, I mean, you know, it's it's not really close. It's, it's not hidden that it's about it's about people and, you know, the other racial groups, even in terms oh, of yeah. the it, communication, the apes and their sign language and and then the interesting point of the humans who can't talk, which are Well, interesting. I think that's, so. that brings 
that goes back to the gender point that you brought up about mm. how the warring man and I think that it's really fascinating there's that fascinating there's a young female character a young human girl in this film who's aligned with the apes mm-hmm. she's taken on board the ape side and I think in terms of this othering that's yeah. really really interesting that, that the main female human character in this film isn't on that side of the line that mm. she's over with the, the, the capital O others I gotta say though it just I couldn't care less about this film I sort of really admire really? it really yeah. Say that right now. Yeah, I sort of. I, I, I know. I know. It sounds like I'm right on board with it. It's great. Sure. Mm. It, like I was really impressed with it objectively, but mm. it finished, and I thought oh, I probably could have sat at home and done something else. <laughs> I, 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 but that's just, I'm not invested in this series. I, I think monkeys yeah. are stupid things. I don't like looking at them. No, well, I mean, clearly they're not. They're I wonderful love animals and respect, oh my gosh, respect to our primate cousins. <laughs> yeah, but. I don't like films about monkeys. <laughs> I just really don't. So did you guys talk about actually monkey shines yeah. last week? I'm very specious. It may have come up. Did you talk yeah, about monkey shines? Monkey shines came up yeah. last week. That is a great I've monkey never seen film. It. It's got monkey in the title. I'm not going Obviously, near it. Obviously, you're not what about, going to What about it? Matthew Broderick's Project X? <laughs> what about God, monkey film? I've seen that. <laughs> That's a good monkey yeah. film. What about uh, Any Which Way But Loose? <laughs> any, every Which what about, Way. Yeah, no. Oh, my God. That's an orangutan, isn't it? Isn't it's a monkey. Oh, so you're just very specific. I specific. With your simian oh, dislike. Wow. There you have it. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what it is about the ape series. I, I, I admire the metaphor. I just could never get on board with it. W- whether it's the humans dressed as apes in the 60s and the 70s films or it's these CGI ones, I what do you can't mean, humans dressed as apes. What do you oh, mean? Cerise. <laughs> Cerise, we're going to have to have a long talk. <laughs> I, I have to say, as somebody on the other side of the fence, because I, I, I love all living creatures. <laughs> um, so do and I, I, do, I do love these films. Except um, for Terrence I, Malick. I even, I even like Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> I love all. I love Thank all apes except for <laughs> Terence Malick. All, all creatures. Mm. Um, I honestly think that if you've never seen any of these films, including the the first five, I honestly think that this is the best place to start. Just um, go grab some popcorn. No, you got to start with the first one and Charlton Heston really? and that scene. Yes, with, I think you that do certain too. ending is yes. just such an. An ending. But everybody's just... seen The Simpsons. Everybody have knows they? that. Has everyone seen The Simpsons? Doctor, yeah. Well, I have millennials. I, I quite like the first film in this sequence, Rise of the Planet of the yeah. Apes, because I, I, again, I like the fact that the apes are, you know, they're, they're, they're monkeys, they're proper animals, and we're seeing that change, and it's sort of that apocalyptic um, narrative, which I, I find more interesting than watching monkeys on horseback holding guns. <laughs> just, I thought this was just an amazing war film. I just thought it was a really solid, classic war film. Yeah, like if I, you put. I agree. Human Absolutely. actors in the role of the apes, which they should have done. Real <laughs> human actors are out of work because of these damn filthy well, because monkeys. Because they're all crap, like Woody Harrelson. <laughs> like, he was awful. He was the down point of the film mm. for me. He he was the CGI apes put in a way better performance than he them. was in a different film, wasn't he? He yeah. was I think, garbage. I think we really ha- with this film as well. I Him think and we Terrence can't Malick in the bin. <laughs> we so, can't underestimate how difficult. Your, it I'm not going to go near there. To, to, <laughs> Sorry, sorry, Emma. Yeah, we're cutting over you. Sorry, sorry, Emma. No, um, the, I don't think we can underestimate how difficult it was to actually define ape characters, mm. and um, because as Alex and I were talking about this before, and Alex mentioned they're they're naked apes; they don't have little costumes on or any, except one one little puffer jacket and, and his little that, Parker, his off. little Parker. That's the Steve Zahn yeah, yeah, character, Steve who, who was lots of fun. Yeah. But um, in in general, this is and it starts actually. I found that the, if anything, the start was. Uh, quite dark and it was difficult orientating to all the characters. I feel like I, maybe I missed a little bit there. So just it's a bit of a nitpicking, but it's mainly because this um, f- this is hard to set up a, 
an ape ensemble and really be able to project personalities through um, creatures that all look the, the same, ultimately, and also um, a CGI. That aspect of it is remarkable. Mm. Yeah, I agree with you. It's, it, it's a hell of a film. I, I just, I'd prefer to see War of the Planet of the Seals <laughs> or the Dushuns. Yeah, I'd that's Im- a really slow this, movie. Imagine, <laughs> imagine this film with yeah, self-aware Dushuns on horseback and guns, <laughs> penguins. Now you're talking. Yeah, there was a. There's too many words in the titles of these films. I just want to put that out there. Yep. I just too many. You it can is, have them shorter. It is great when the, the the apes decide to throw their shit though. That was a pretty good moment. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it was a long... That's a very ape thing, though, you know. Yeah, it you is. Can't, I mean, it seals a, wouldn't do that. And you're they questioning why hands. I look down upon them. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm just I'm the worst person now. Um, look, War for the Planet of the Apes, not my thing, but I objectively think it's really good, and the rest of you are really into it. That's great. Yay! <laughs> That wasn't, that wasn't meant to sound nearly as condescending as it did. You were listening <laughs> to Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. A Ghost Story is the latest film by American filmmaker David Lowry, who wrote and directed Pete's Dragon from last year and Ain't Them Body Saints in 2013. Lowry cast Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara as the tragic romantic couple in Ain't Them Bodies Saints, and he casts them again in A Ghost Story, again as a romantic couple and again in tragic circumstances. In this case, the tragedy comes from Casey's character dying and then having his ghost hang around on Earth. His ghost is represented as a bedsheet with eyes cut out that nobody living can see or hear. So for most of the film, we see Affleck as a white bedsheet as he witnesses the future and the past in a sort of uh, meditation on the meaning of life it sounds terrible on paper. What did you think of the actual film? I, it's, it's a difficult film to describe without sounding naff. It's a ter- it sounds terrible on paper and it wasn't much better on screen. <laughs> oh, really? This is my biggest disappointment. Have you, you've seen it, Thomas? Yes, I yes, absolutely this, loved it. This is, this mm. is, I, I adored Pete's Dragon. Like, I think we did Pete's Dragon yeah. on the show last year and, yes. and it, I just went wobbly at the knees for Pete's Dragon. And I remember, I, I've been so excited about a ghost story. I've deliberately not read anything about it. Um, I know that it's gotten a lot of critical praise, but I've really gone out of my way just on the back of Pete's Dragon. It's like, okay, the guy that's doing Pete's Dragon is doing a kind of, arty, horror kind of film. This is, like, right up my alley. It's um, not a horror, though. No, it's no. not. It's no. not. But it's, it's been it's, bizarre I, that a few people have tried to frame it oh, as such. Oh, not at all. Not at yeah. all. I think um, it was just pompous, navel-gazing. I, I, There's a scene in about the first 15 minutes where Rooney Mara eats a pie in real time and mm. every fibre of my being was like, get up and walk out. You don't have to watch a film where you watch Rooney Mara eating a pie in real time for five minutes. No, you minutes. just sold it to me. That sounds um, fabulous. And I, was, I, I should have walked out. I, and I was like, no, no, I need to be professional. And I got to the end of the film. It's like I, 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 should have, I just should have trusted my instinct. I loathed this film. I thought it was tedious and pretentious and utterly pointless. The, the concept of the sheet, just to me, it felt like a year 12 drama production. It was that level of intellect. There was, there was, like I just thought it was so tedious. There was someone in the cinema. I was actually listening because I love when you're in the cinema by yourself and being able to listen to conversations. Afterwards, one lady said, "Well, that was silly because everyone knows ghosts don't move like that. They hover." Oh, really? <laughs> and I thought, That's quite charming. That is her observation of the film. That's quite interesting. Um, this, yeah, this film I thought was. Um, 
right from start to finish, I thought, wow, well, this is quite gutsy. I mean, these were long, long shots, locked off shots, hardly any movement. Um, and when I say long shots, they just, uh, the length of time of these shots is very long, longer than any Hollywood film I've probably seen. I've seen European films that have done this, but not a Hollywood film. Also, it's pointed refusal to create any drama. It actually avoided drama. When there was the Casey Affleck uh, accident, you don't, it doesn't happen. You just see it afterwards. You don't see, the grief is only the most low key of grief. You don't see a moment where someone's told of death or anything. It's like this, it's like the whole film happens after the fact in some way. And then there's the, um, that the ghost and the, the problem is with, but I, this is all on purpose. I know the film did this on purpose is that, you know, you don't see him, you know, it's just, uh, it could be anyone, you know, and there's no emotionality to it. And literally our ghost has no spirit. You don't feel any, uh, the c- couple of co- times he reacts to something, but um, I think that this uh, and, and there was a lot of uh, confusion on behalf of the audience. I, it was interesting to get the vibe after after the film. And I think that it's the film fails on purpose to create any emotional connection to anything in it. Well, I was very emotionally invested in this film, especially... Except for Thomas. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I think it's, it's fair to say it's a divisive film. People yeah, have hated yeah. and loved this. And no apes. It doesn't have any apes in it. Had, well, that, was, it was going, that had it going for it. <laughs> it had it, that going for it for a start with me. Weirdly enough, I really wasn't into it for about 20 or 30 minutes. And, you know, it's got the, the that, that, that reduced aspect ratio. It's, it's kind of made to look like a 16 mil... Uh, projector that shot at the wall with those kind of rounded, fuzzy edges. And I did, I found it a little twee at first, that the, that the pie-eating scene, I almost got up and walked out. And I mm. thought, what the hell is this? Why am I watching this? And I'm the exact opposite. I'm glad I went against that instinct because as the film kicked into gear, it just really, I don't know, sutured me into its whole vibe. And, and I guess there's absolutely nothing I can say to convince someone who didn't enjoy it that it's a good film because for all the reasons other people may not have liked it, I really loved it. I, I found it... Um, um, just a very quiet and lovely kind of reflection on those big themes, which are very hard to do in cinema without sounding pompous. But, you know, life and death and, and the universe and the meaning of life mm. and et cetera. And, and, you know, why I didn't latch on to the sincerity of a film like War of the Planet of the Apes, I latched on to the sincerity in this film. Like, it plays it really straight. Um, the sheet over the head I thought was silly at first as well, but it stays on screen the entire film and towards the end, it just those kind of droopy eyes, I just, for me, it took on this really kind of mournful oh, gaze. I could see that. I could and see I, that, I yeah. I found it really affecting and it did some interesting things with time, this idea that Oh, I he, think that was stuck, the strongest thing about it. Yeah, yeah, so he sort of starts flying through through time and there's a very bizarre sequence where um, he's at a party and there's this drunk guy starts pontificating, doing this little rant about nihilism which is completely rubbish but also <laughs> compelling and I think it, it, it's, it's Will Oldham who does that who's appeared um, in films like Old Joy um, I really liked him in that he performs as Bonnie Prince Billy I'm not really across Bonnie Prince Billy's music but I'm aware of the music um, I found that performance electrifying I, I liked all the contradictions how there was something just sort of so undramatic about it all but there was something it, was, it, it was, touched me and I, I can't it was definitely I, the, the thing though about what you said on time I think 
think in every way it was it was really that was kind of what it was talking about more or yep. exploring aspects of time, even in terms of the length of the shots, you know. It was all being very, very, very clever, but I don't know I whether don't there was... To me, to me it felt really undergraduate. Like it just felt really undergraduate. Well, very, just, very it, like the, the clever can feel undergraduate. <laughs> like, but it was like, yeah. let's, let's be really clever. Let's make yeah. a film and we're yeah. going to use this really strong imagery of the ghost and 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 the, the yeah, ratio. But I, aspect. I don't think it was doing that. I, I, I don't I think anyone spoke really with that voice either. Okay. <laughs> and they were making that's it. How, but that's the, yeah. that's the aggression with which it was trying to tell me how clever it was. Yeah. I just yeah. found it really pompous. I didn't get that um, vibe it, from it at all. I was it didn't give you any, alienated didn't from this give film. You I felt anything nothing. to look at really either. I mean, you know, the thing is that, and, and and it did that on purpose as well. You could tell they picked them a really ordinary house, nothing particularly special to look at. So it wasn't like you were looking at a beautiful production design that could get you through the film either. I think so it, yeah, it was this film. I think is very conscious, maybe not consciously, but I think that it aligns quite neatly with um, what I've heard a few critics call not horror, which I think is a really great description for this really interesting work that's being done using the fantastic, this kind of dark supernatural imagery, but not being horror films. So um, uh, when I was watching this, I was thinking a lot actually of a film that came out last year by a director called Oz Perkins um, called I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House. Um, that's very, very slow. There's actually some shots that's in this film that are film. very, very similar, like of just empty door frames and these very, very long, slow shots. And it has this similar kind of um, weighty poetic to it, I guess. It goes somewhere very different. It's a different story, but it's the same kind of thing. It's sort of, but I, I found that absolutely gripping. And but that I think, was a pretty film, though. This wasn't a very pretty film. I think, um, and even just the aspect <laughs> ratio, I just well, didn't understand. To me. <laughs> like, like I, when I first saw this film, yeah, the first thing boring. that grabbed me was the aspect ratio. It's really, I love it when people play with that stuff, but I don't get why. It was superfluous in this film. It's yeah. like, it was, to me, it just yeah. was like, oh, well, let's just be arty. Like, we'll Again, I, I don't film. think anyone's speaking like that when I decided to. <laughs> I reckon there was a lot of dudes you, you, speaking like you're that. You're doing that instant discredit made. film voice. Um, <laughs> I, I, I saw this. Look, I think it's, it's a low. It, it's in the area of Terence Malick's recent work, oh, oh. And, <laughs> yeah, and, and again, either very polarizing. Either it you go with it, you much don't. Like a yeah, yeah. I um, and I haven't loved all of Terence Malick's recent stuff, but I have mm. loved a lot of it. I think it's just a very lo-fi kind. You know, it's a lo-fi film going for the big themes, and I like the sincerity in this one of that. And yeah, it's going to be polarizing. I, but I, see I loved it. it. It sounds rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> I just really thought Thomas I'd like... didn't convince you. No, oh. Bill Morrison's got this ground covered. Yeah. see the films of yep. Bill Morrison if you want meditations upon well, think, time and And if you want ghosts in sheets, I think Halloween and, and yeah. the second paranormal activity, yes, I think. Yes, I yes, love, yes. I mean, I'm I love not a, that one. Although I do I have know. to say I've been These really, are not comparable films. <laughs> <laughs> they have the ghost in the sheet. They, have yeah. the, they do really... The one thing I liked about this was uh, a cameo, I think. The second paranormal by, film. <laughs> no, no, no. The second paranormal activity film has a joke with, with, with a ghost wearing a sheet with the eyes cut out. There's a direct right. iconographic The same thing, clearly. It's garbage. And same with Halloween, the ghost with the eyes. And cut films up. about the KKK. <laughs> yes. I was thinking a lot about that. Mm. I was thinking a lot about that. There's an early scene in the film where he's walking through the hospital and it looks like a, a human sees him and it's a black man. And that was the first thing that I thought. Yes. I was like, God, is this guy just seeing this as a Casey Affleck as a KKK dude? Because that would be an interesting film. film. <laughs> Kesha does a cameo in this. She plays the ghost who lives next door on a floral sheet. We never see Kesha. Her name turns up in the credits. I love the ghost next door in the, in the floral sheet. Her. I love Kesha. Won't recognise her and even her voice. Great. That's well, like a, that's the only pointless good. cameo. <laughs> yes. 
it's quite yeah, silly. Yeah, there's a weird choice. Well, there we go. I, you were like warring apes. I like man trying ghosts. That's 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 the division line. Well, you I'm have been Plato's listening cave. to Plato's Cave. I'm not on the show next week, and it's probably a good thing. <laughs> Oh. Oh. Only, only the good-looking ones are on the show next I'm week. I'm going to go and wear a sheet and cry about time in life. Again. A Monster Calls is on general release courtesy of Entertainment One Film. War for the Planet of the Apes is on wide release courtesy of 20th Century Fox. And A Ghost Story is on limited release courtesy of Man Man Entertainment. You've been listening to Thomas Caldwell, Cerise Howard, Alexandra Helen Nicholas and Emma Westwood on Plato's Cave. The podcast version of this show is produced and edited by Faith Everard. But do listen in next week. Uh, Cerise, Alex, Emma and original Plato's Cave host Tara Judah will be discussing films from the Melbourne International Film Festival at the MIF Festival Lounge downstairs at the Forum on Flinders Street. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au. 